what's up? We're back. Woo! Somehow we figured yeah. it out. Somehow we're oh, here. Oh, yeah. Allie yeah. is alive, guys. I'm alive, y'all. I'm alive. <laughs> yeah. How are you feeling? I am well. Corona, um, hot take coronavirus sucks. It's real. And um, it, it kicked my ass. So for anyone listening that thinks like, oh my God, I'm young. It's going to be fine. No, I now have an inhaler. <laughs> it kicked my ass. <laughs> like full on just fucking annihilated me. But we're good. We got an inhaler. Me and Vinny are twins now. Twins. Inhaler twins. Allie, did you do the thing where because you couldn't taste anything, you ate like crazy healthy because you weren't bothered by the taste of like really healthy food? I straight up ate unseasoned Brussels sprouts Brilliant. for like three meals. I literally had like, m- like mounds of vegetables because I was, and Aaron is like, all right, I'm going to season them up. I'm like, don't bother. Don't waste the salt, dude. Just leave it. <laughs> don't waste the salt. Don't waste the salt. And I literally would it's have like, just a bowl of vegetables. It's like 80 cents for like a quart of salt. She's like, no, don't waste it. It's not worth it. <laughs> like, don't waste it. I'm not making money for three weeks. Don't waste the seasoning. Don't waste that garlic powder. <laughs> Do you still, but, uh, have, you yeah. still have, did, have you still have you gotten your taste and smell back? My smell isn't back a hundred percent, but my taste is back. Um, and my lungs, my doctor said they'll be having symptoms for another like two months or so. But um, yeah, we're uh, we're we're chilling, we're hanging in there. Shit. Well, I think you had terrible taste in the first place, so I don't think you're missing out on much anyway. I was about to say, look at look at my track record with boys, <laughs> other than my current boyfriend. Hey. But how? Well, hey. terrible taste. Uh, welcome to Oh Yeah That Song. We're the podcast <laughs> about the songs you know but know nothing about. And uh, yeah, if you're just joining us, thank you. Uh, we are uh, airing this one across the airwaves from the comfort of our homes. And uh, yeah, Benny, tell them why we picked this next song. Because you picked it. So I want to know why you picked it. Oh, oh so I was trying to, because we kind of talked about doing um, songs that had like a Christmas version of it. And I was having a really hard time Googling that and finding like a list of songs like that. And I don't know them off the top of my head. So I just decided we should do uh, artists that also have really famous Christmas songs. Maybe, maybe we'll do like a Mariah Carey. Or maybe we'll do like a Frank Sinatra. Or I think we're, for December, we're going to do artists who also have like famous Christmas songs. And we'll throw those in there at some point uh, in the research. But um, yeah, well, there's a little surprise. Another reason why I picked uh, Otis Redding. I don't want to give away the details. I don't want to spoil anything. It's going to be a big fun finish. Uh, but there's another small reason. But yeah, we're trying to keep it slightly <laughs> it's Christmas the reason I think I don't know if it's that small, but... Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think that's very fun. Yeah. Well, I'm, you're giving I mean, it away it's, more. It's, it's, like, uh, it's more of like a, we're, you know, I don't know, thinking funny, not haha funny kind of situation. We're, you know I mean? we're, we're doing a barely Christmas-themed December this year. That's what's going on. That's we're fair. doing a accidentally Christmas-themed. It doesn't really feel like Christmas too much. Exactly. So I mean, literally, you guys are um, both nothing's dressed, real. You guys are both dressed like you are about to go or in Antifa or whatever. <laughs> I'm wearing a green hoodie <laughs> or whatever Mine's you celebrate. Maybe maybe we'll do Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Maybe we'll do a, that. Would be fun. Maybe we'll do a classic Kwanzaa song. Who knows? the The options are endless. Maybe we'll do that for one of our mini sods. We'll do uh, uh, all the holiday music. That'll well, be a fun thing to do. For today's all of it. Today's song is. Sitting on the dock of the bay 
by Otis Redding. And boy, I can't wait to get to the cover section because it has been covered so many times. The cover section is sweet. Yeah, and there's uh, so many people that you know but didn't know covered this song. That could be a whole podcast in itself. But (laughs) The covers you know but didn't know anything about. Honestly, half the songs we, we do our covers, so it kind of is that podcast already. It's true. So the song is Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. And Otis Ray Redding Jr. was an American singer, songwriter, record producer, arranger, and talent scout. He is also considered one of the greatest singers in the history of American popular music and a seminal artist in soul music and rhythm and blues. Uh, Redding was born in Dawson, Georgia, the U.S., just in case you weren't sure. (laughs) Good note. Is that like Dawson's Creek? Yeah, it's actually where the creek is. Is in, in that's where is that the, really where the creek is? That's where the creek is? That show is based on Otis Redding. You didn't know that? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Otis Redding looks really different as a uh, 25-year-old white man. That's yeah. the talent scout they were referring to in, in, in that. Is he, he discovered James Vanderbeek. That's the Otis Redding. That's uh, it. He that's it. makes a cameo in the creek at <laughs> He <one> broke. Point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Otis Redding broke. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's so stupid. Oh my God. Um, um, so he was the fourth of six children and the first son of Otis Redding Sr. and Fanny Roseman. Redding Sr. was a sharecropper and then worked at Robbins Air Force Base near Macon. Macon, Remember yeah, Macon, Macon. I played, Macon? There. Yeah, I played Macon. there a Macon. lot of times. Actually, I've played uh, music festivals there and shows there in Macon, Georgia. I'll keep my thoughts. Must have been a pretty, pretty big festival for a big town like Macon, Georgia. Hey, Macon's. Hey, hold on. (laughs) Calm down. Macon's got its. Macon holds some weight. Okay. It's not that small of a town. It does hold some weight. There's actually, (laughs) I guess the, I think it's the Doobie brothers are from there or something. And like, uh, I think it goes like Atlanta, Savannah, Athens, then Macon. I think those are like the big four. Huge music town, I guess. Yeah. But surprisingly so, so yeah so they do have they actually have a couple like theaters and stuff that yeah so we played yeah. there shout out Macon yeah shout out Macon Georgia guys shout out Macon shout out Macon, shout out Macon. when uh, when Macon. Otis was three the family moved to Tyndall Heights a predominantly black public housing project in Macon and at an early age Redding sang in the Vineville Vineville yeah that's the right word Baptist Church choir and learned guitar and piano from age 10 he took drum and singing lessons uh, at Ballard Hudson High School, he sang in the school band. Every Sunday, he earned $6 by performing gospel songs for Macon radio station WIBB. Real quick, just to back up for a second, his mom's name was Fanny Roseman. No, we don't have enough Fannies these days. I want more Fannies. What happened to the Fannies? Oh, I want more Fanny. Fanny. Hey. Maybe, maybe where you're he, at, Vinny. We, we're Zooming so we can see each other. <laughs> but you guys can only hear us. We keep finger gunning. We keep doing like physical cues, like yeah. <laughs> winking and, and finger gunning. <laughs> we gotta we gotta pretend people can't see us. We get to keep remembering. I kind of I I wish that we could get video going, like on. Um, We're gonna try to figure it out next week. I think for the we'll, people, we'll try to look cute. I think we did it. We did it one time already, but I don't remember how. We, we did, did it once, but the Zoom audio was just not ideal. Yeah, I mean, the timing. Zoom video quality. Yeah. Um. But yeah, we could definitely do it. We'll figure it out. But by the way, uh, it, when it said every Sunday he earned $6 for performing songs on the radio, six bucks was like 50 bucks today. So like, it doesn't sound like a lot, but it actually, he was getting like a, for, you know, for a high schooler, that's kind of a pretty penny for getting to, you know, sing music on the radio on the weekends and shit. That's pretty yeah. awesome. His past- it's a lot of money for right now too. Right. 
Happy COVID. Six dollars or fifty dollars? Fuck yeah, yeah. Six dollars. <laughs> I mean, six dollars just for single. You can buy a lot of. You can buy a lot of salt with six dollars. You know how many fucking Spotify? Dude, that's what I'm saying. You know how much fucking seasoning I could buy with that? Yeah, it's true. <laughs> uh, his, that's all that I want. His uh, Otis, his passion was singing, and he often cited Little Richard and Sam Cooke as influences. Redding said that he would not be here without Little Richard and that he entered the music business because of Little Richard. He is my inspiration. I used to sing like Little Richard, his rock and roll stuff. My present music has a lot of him in it. So, you know, that old rock and roll stuff. I wasn't expecting that because now that I can't like really see you like just all of a sudden like queuing up your iPad, it's a little scary every time. I know. (laughs) (laughs) It catches us off guard now. Yeah, it like freaks me out a little bit. Um, so I always thought that Sam Cooke and Otis Redding were kind of in the same era. So it was interesting to me to see that he cited him as one of his biggest influences. He was only 10 years older than him, though, um, which I guess is a big, you know, that's a 21-year-old, you know, saying that a 31-year-old is a big influence. That's fair. But I don't know. I always just thought they were the same time for some reason. Um, I know. I, I kind of group sense. all of them together at the same time, truthfully. Yeah, I, I don't have a great understanding of um, who was first and stuff like that. I mean, we did that with like Beethoven and Bach and uh, Mozart. I I was like so sh- taken aback by the fact that they weren't all just like born at the same time because you would just like to group people in the same genre together. But yeah, I guess it makes um, it easier. Otis Redding was the younger of the of the three. Yeah, by a lot. At age fifteen, Redding left school to help financially support his family. His father had contracted tuberculosis and uh, was often hospitalized, leaving his mother as the family's primary income earner. He worked as a well digger, as a gasoline station attendant, and occasionally as a musician. Pianist uh, Gladys Williams, a locally well-known musician in Macon, and another who inspired Redding, often performed at the Hillview Springs Social Club, and Redding sometimes played piano with her band there. Uh, Speaking of, uh, Allie, you weren't on the call earlier, but I got a piano. Uh, upright piano. You didn't have a piano? Oh, an upright piano. Ooh. That's Wait. exciting. They sell those on what? Facebook Marketplace for free all the time. What's a, Well, he paid a lot of money for his, so he feels pretty stupid right now. What's a non-upright piano? Uh, a grand piano or a keyboard. So what's an upright piano? It just stands up and it doesn't go out. You know, like, you know, a grand piano goes out. Sure. So, oh, I see what you're saying. I, I know what you're thinking. I, I know there what you're thinking. There we go. Now. It's also, also laying down um, pianos, too, which are yeah, geometry is hard, which are fun. <laughs> yeah. I'm learning, I'm learning the one. theme song from uh, The Leftovers. I'm pretty pumped on it. Wait, so do, wow. do upright pianos sound more like like kid pianos, like really high pitched? No, or is that just, like just, just. So think of like a xylophone, you know? Yeah, it sounds like. Actually, I have. It's like that. I have a little toy yeah, piano. Yeah, so it sounds like a little kid <laughs> piano. I do have a toy piano in the background, but uh, no, I have a full size too. Okay, got it. Hey, I just want to point out, like, this is the epitome of, like, rags to riches. Homeboy literally was, uh, right. he lived in the projects, and then at 15, he had to become a digger and a gasoline station attendant just to, uh, like, help his family out with money because his dad got sick. This is, like, the epitome of the American dream being as shit as poor as possible and then becoming Otis Redding. I think that's pretty cool. I thought you were saying yeah. the epitome of the American dream is that I got a piano, but uh, not everything too. is about you, Jared. <laughs> Just some things. I know this is shocking, but uh, <laughs> uh, so uh, Williams 
uh, Gladys Williams, the PNN. Gladys. Yes. Gladys Williams hosted <laughs> Sunday talent shows. Uh, Redding <laughs> attended with two friends, singers Lil Willie Jones and uh, Eddie Ross. I looked them both up, but they don't have anything that I could find recording wise. Redding's break- Yeah, there's going to be a lot of names in here that are just kind of like lost in the mix because, right. they, you know, they're, they're uh, important to his story, but not necessarily important to like pop culture. Right. Um, they're important to his story, but they're not important to the rest of us. To yeah. us, yeah. I mean, honestly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of like one of you is going to be important to my story, and then one of you is not important at all to my story going forward. Yeah, I'll let you guys figure it out. I'm fine not being important. Ali, we'll do rock. I don't want to be involved with how you get famous. I don't want to be involved. We'll do Rochambeau to figure out who who gets to be the important one. Maybe my story is just become a very good piano player. (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, see, I I don't care to be involved in that. Not on that little kid piano, it's not. You don't want to be part no. of that story? Okay, that's fair. No, I'm good. It sounds pretty anticlimactic. Climatic. Um, Redding's breakthrough came in 1958 on <laughs> DJ Hamp Swain's The Teenage Party, a talent contest at the local Roxy and Douglas Theaters. That sounds, Johnny by Jenkins, the way, just a heads up, that sounds like huh? something that uh, a party organizer would name that wants to like creep on like 17-year-old girls. Like, the Teenage Party. Uh, we're, it's the Teenage Party. <laughs> it's like the 18 we'll plus the 18 plus clubs, you know? Yeah. yeah. That are like phone parties on Thursdays. 18-year-olds allowed. The Teenage Party. I'll give you booze. <laughs> I promise you can eat share two beers. Yeah. Um, Johnny Jenkins, a locally prominent guitarist, was in the audience and finding Redding's backing band lacking in musical skills, offered to accompany him. So he literally was like, honestly, your band fucking sucks. I'm a jump in. Imagine being a high schooler and you're like, you see something in this kid, Otis Redding. You're like, I'm going to be in his band. He's going to be big one day. You're the guitarist for him. And this other kid's like, Hey, that guy sucks. Can I be your guitarist instead? And then that's it. You just, that is, that is all you got to be in Otis Redding's uh, story is the kid that was in his band for 15 minutes before Johnny Jenkins was like, nah, pick me instead. Well, that must be really depressing. I think that, you know, it happens. You know, there was another member of the Beatles. What? What? Yeah, there's another member of the Beatles that left before they, uh, before Be- Beatlemania started. Wait, really? The other. This is, I know. I, I feel like we need to do one on the Beatles. I feel like the fifth Beatle is like a joke. I thought that was like. I thought that was like a conspiracy theory. My dad will know the answer to this. (laughs) Conspiracy theory. Yeah. Yeah, he was yeah, the you got the moon landing, before. 9-11, and the fifth beetle. You know, one of the prominent... And Avril Lavigne's dead, and Britney, free Britney. Earth, you know, the big, the big conspiracy theories. Fifth beetle. Yes, the big one. He was the drummer before Ringo. <laughs> so, and then they kicked his ass out. No shit. What? That's crazy. That's ridiculous. Just um, okay, so Redding saying... Like that. What? I, I said refer to me on any music history like that. I'll be the music history guy. I'm pretty good at He's All right, sure. Okay, none of you guys can see him right now, but he literally just like popped his collar. I don't know what I you're wearing. Right also, now. Google Google is free, so we don't need you necessarily. Like, truly. this is true, dude. I, I even have Siri. I don't oh know shit, there's activator. Okay, oh god, I read stop. This in a Facebook post by my aunt. What? Nothing. <laughs> god damn it! All right, Redding saying Little Richard TBGBs. Mm. The combination enabled Redding to win Swain's talent contest for 15 consecutive weeks. The cash prize was $5, 
$44 today. And then, so, oh, 660 total. So yeah, totaling for 15 weeks, $44. <clears throat> he made $660 over a, over a total of 15 weeks, which again, doesn't seem like a lot. Like three but months. Like, <clears throat> but I mean, he is a kid. Um, and this was just like a thing he was doing on the side. This wasn't like his, you know, actual job. This was him 15 weeks in a row in a city. It's like as, as medium sized as Macon, you're, you know, people are going to start recognizing your name after a while. Yeah. Uh, Jenkins later worked as a lead, as lead guitarist and played with Redding during several later gigs. Redding was soon invited to replace Willie Jones as frontman of Patty Cake. That's funny. Patty Cake. Cake, Pat T dot cake, and the Mighty Panthers featuring Johnny Jenkins. Redding was then hired by the Upsetters when Little Richard abandoned rock and roll in favor of gospel music. He was well paid, making about 25 bucks a gig, so that's $222 today, but he did not stay long. Allie, really quick, went, this is really fun. went by your name, what if he went by Al E. Miller? I mean, I could. Like Patty Cake. I got that. Um, it's not as funny as Patty Cake, though. That's true. His guys, okay, his literal idol. Cake. Oh my God, Jared. <laughs> Jared. <laughs> yeah, what's up? His his literal idol Yo, left a up? band called the Upsetters when they replaced him for Otis Redding. Do you know why Little Richard stopped making rock and roll music and started making gospel music? No. He saw the Sputnik Russian spaceship and he thought it was a sign from God to stop making rock and roll and to start making gospel music. How the hell do those two things equate? Talk about cause and effect. Like, did you think when they were designing the Sputnik that they were like, this is going to make Little Richard quit rock and roll? I would hope so. That'd be my initial thought. Can you imagine? No. Anyway, at age 18... Redding met 15-year-old Zelma Atwood, yikes, at the teenage party. Also yikes. Shocking. She gave birth to their first child, Dexter, in the summer of 1960 and married Redding in August 1961. So we're how talking- How old was she? Young is how old she was. Um, Wait, okay. So teenage 18, party. 18. Allie's going to start doing quick math. Uh, I'll, I'll read the next bit of research because it doesn't. It's still on the same subject. In mid 1960s, Otis moved to Los Angeles with his sister Deborah, while his wife Zelma and their children stayed in Macon, Georgia. He literally went, "I'm gonna go make a big in the big city, babe. You stay here in Georgia and take care of our multiple children." Okay, so then, Otis was born in 1941, so he would have been 19. So she would have been 16. 16, 19 and 16. Oh, God. That is young. I think that was less frowned upon back then, though. Yeah. I don't know. My it's hard. My, I, like, I think both of my grandmas got married, like, when they were 16 back in the day. Back then, it was, like, more normal, I think. You know? Well, because technically, the prime time to have a kid is when you're, like, in between 13 and 16. Like, whoa, anatomically whoa, speaking. Allie, yeah. You're creeping me out didn't, over You here. didn't know that? No, that's why, like, colonial people, that's why older guys would always find the young, the young broads, because they literally are, like, the right, like, the anatomically correct time when your body's, like, the most ready to have a baby is, like, right after you, like, basically hit puberty. I don't like the this. The right time to have a baby no, is it's creepy. You're so it's normal. a baby? That is weird to me. Yeah, while you're a baby. Babies should have babies. Do we know that's a real fact, or is that just a thing like creepy colonial bit. dudes tried to say? 
<laughs> oh, no, yeah, honestly, I'm gonna look at, that's that's fair. That's a fair Best question, Jared. Time. That really is. He's like, oh, uh, yeah, like 14 years old, prime time. And they're like, okay. It's science. Uh, Just ask the guy with the stick. <laughs> <laughs> no. It says, it says, well, this is medical today. Typically, the oh, 20s no. mark a time for high fertility, but like back then it was earlier. I learned it in social studies, okay? Oh, I don't, I yeah, social studies, not science. I really do think Jared's right. I think they were just <laughs> talking little, like young girls into getting pregnant really early. I don't know. Uh, I don't like that. Hey, shoot your shot. Do what you got to do, baby. <laughs> Jesus, Allie. Do what you got to do. <laughs> um, All right, well, we're going to move past Los that Angeles, questionable comment. Eddie <laughs> recorded his first song, including the songs Tough Enough and she's all right. This is she's all right. And two red two of the songs Redding wrote alone called I'm getting hip and Gama Lama. And we'll get to Gama Lama in a minute, but uh this is she's all right. This is what he wrote after his girlfriend got pregnant at 15. They were like, "Is she good?" She's He's all like, right. Yeah, she's all right. Yeah. She's yeah, she'll be fine. And then they're like, "Are they going to be able is she going to be able to give birth?" And then he goes, she's "Tough enough." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. How'd you get her pregnant? I'm getting hip. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Holly. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. I haven't recorded in a while. I'm on a oh, roll. Good. Saving these jokes out. She's oh, that was finger guns jokes. again, guys. Uh, I know, right? You should get COVID more often. Hey. <laughs> I, have t- I have one more month of immunity before it's over. I was gonna say, you oh, may have so I'm going to go I'm going to go to the teenage party. Sense of humor. <laughs> That's true. This is true. I'm going to go to the teenage party while I still have immunity. (laughs) Have some fun. I'm not a child predator. Um, A member member of Pat T. Cake. Uh, Yeah, you're wearing a black hoodie right now and trying to talk to us about how 13-year-olds should have babies. I don't know. You're creeping me out a little bit. Do you need to borrow my band van? Um, A member of Pat T. Cake. We need to get off the subject immediately. (laughs) A member of Pat T. Cake and the Mighty Panther. See, good thing you guys have me because if it was just you two talking about this, you guys would totally get in trouble. But I'm here. I'm here. We're good. Oh, my God. All right. Sorry, Jared. Go ahead. Fine. A member of Pat T. Cake and the Mighty Panthers, Redding toured the southern United States in the Chitlin Circuit, a string of venues that were hospitable to black entertainers during the era of racial segregation, which lasted into the early 60s. Johnny J. Have you seen uh, Green Book? Right. Mm-mm, not Same yet. idea. It's basically like there were only certain venues and certain hotels that you could like safely stay in if you were black during you know Jim Crow right. and segregation and all of that. So they basically only played those venues, only played to those crowds in those cities. Right. Um, Johnny Jenkins left the band to become the featured artist with the Pine Toppers. Around this time, Otis Redding met Phil Walden, Walden, sorry, the future founder of the recording company, Phil Walden and Associates, and later Bobby Smith, who ran the small label Confederate Records. Yikes! Well, it's this. It it is the South. I mean, they're in. They're in. Are they in L.A. or in, in Georgia right now? It's still big. Yikes! They're in. They're in. Um, LA. In high, it didn't. It just. It didn't age well. It did not age no, well. It did not age well. Like, oh yeah, Confederate Records. Like, hey, see, and then the Otis and then the Redding. next sentence. The next sentence. He signed with the Confederate, and I in my brain, I read he signed with the Confederates, and I was like, ooh, yeah, it just didn't age well. But didn't I mean, age well. It was what it was back then. I guess. All right. So uh, he signed with Confederate and recorded his second single, Shout Bamalama, a rewrite of Gamalama. 
This is how the track starts. So, you know, it's a play on the Gamma Land you know, song. Fun. Yeah. And then his. Uh, and yeah. Fat Girl. Because that's how his wife got when he got her knocked up at age 12. Oh, wow. Good transition. Allie, you were really on a roll today. I'm on a roll today, um, guys. Uh, together with his band Otis and the Shooters, when Walden started to look for a record label for Jenkins, Atlantic Record representative Joe Galkin showed interest and um, around 1962 sent him to the Stack Studio in Memphis. Redding drove Jenkins to the session as the latter did not have a driver's license. Yeah, because he's like 13. Uh, just kidding. He was like 25. Uh, the session with Jenkins, backed by Booker T and the MGs, was unproductive and ended early, but Redding was allowed to perform two songs. The first was Hey, Hey, Baby, which studio chief Jim Stewart thought sounded too much like Little Richard. And the second was These Arms of Mine, featuring Jenkins on guitar and Steve Cropper on piano. Okay, there's Stuart a lot later, to unpack in there. There's a really lot. Quick, really quick. Hold that on. In, so first and foremost, okay. this is the first time he interacts with Stax Records in Memphis, and they're going to be like the most prominent part of his entire career. Right. He basically bases his entire career off this, his relationship with Stax. Right. Um, Booker T and the MGs. Jared, do you have a song by them really quick? Uh, well, yes, but first, uh, the songs she was talking about, Hey, Hey, Baby. Here's Hey, Hey, Baby. This is the one he thought sounded too much like Little Richard and wasn't crazy into. The, yes. And then here's uh, Booker T and the MGs. Here's Green Onions. So this is um, the first time he interacts with Booker T and the MGs, who was in their own right a really big deal. All I can think about when I hear the song is Sandlot. Oh, right. Yeah. Totally. This is the scene where like the other baseball team shows up and they're like changing, like exchanging insults to each other. Yeah. Have you seen the Sandlot Alley? Oh yeah. Of course. Well, I don't know. Oh you yeah. You guys are so young. I don't know what you've seen. You know. So yeah, I think Ali. I think you were going to yeah. mention a quote that um, Stewart uh, said about his performance of "These Arms of Mine," right? Oh yeah. So uh, Stewart ended up saying about Redding, um, everybody was fixing to go home, but Joe Galkin insisted we give Otis a listen. There was something different about the ballad. He really poured his soul into it. So that was, was um, Stewart talking about Redding. That was these arms of mine specifically. That's like his first big hit that he got. Yeah. Um, that's like basically what broke him. Nice slow ballad. I, th- I mean, so good. I think this is still his like one of his top songs actually. Let's see. Uh, uh, yeah, it's it's got 57 million. It's like his eighth most popular song on Spotify. So not top five, but, you know, it's close. No, but I mean, top 10 and 50 million listens, it's still a pretty big deal. Yeah, not bad. More than you, Jared. That's, hey, yeah, you right? don't know that. We, no, we, there's <laughs> right, stats. So, <laughs> there's no, numbers. like I literally we do, do know, know that. Those are, those are fake stats. <laughs> Somebody, uh, I'm being. That doesn't include Apple Music and SoundCloud. Yeah, it's rigged. (laughs) They're not counting all of the ballots. They're not counting all of the streams. (laughs) (laughs) Demand, we go back to Macon, Georgia, and we count all the streams. 
I want a Spotify recount. I want the I want a Spotify. Every, every stream on Spotify needs to be recounted immediately. There's a tweet. There's like everyone someone. when they got their Spotify wrapped up. Right. You're like, first of all, yeah. Britney Spears was not my top artist. I want a recount. That's <laughs> not true. Oh my God, that's a tweet. I need to tweet that. I need to tweet like just saw oh hey. Spotify wrapped and uh, they're not counting. I came up streams. with that. Hashtag rig. Yeah, she did come up with it, Jared. Okay, well, I'll credit I did, you. Allie. You can't. I'll say all right, then that's fine. That's okay, fine. Cool. These arms of mine and others right, so, from the yeah, 1962 yeah, to 1963 sessions were included on Redding's debut album, Pain in My Heart. That's What My Heart Needs and Mary's Little Lamb were recorded on June 1963. Here's I, I added this one because I thought it was funny. Mary's Little Lamb. So it's... So it's basically like an R&B version of Mary Had a Little Lamb. Like, it, oh, I love this. Interesting. I like it. To me, it's like, why did he decide to do that? Was he just like, man, I need another song on this record. And he's just like, fuck it. Let's do Mary Had a Little Lamb. You know what I mean? My favorite my favorite part about all of this is uh, Mary's Little Lamb was uh, Redding's only track with both background singing and brass. And it became his worst selling single. Yeah. Oh, that's we knew fantastic. immediately. They were like, "Yeah, you missed with this one, bud." They're like, "Yeah, you missed." I could see the creativity, but but you missed it. He was like, "Well, wait till my next one, London Bridge." Itsy bitsy spider. <laughs> well, hold on, London Bridge by Fergie is a fantastic song. So calm down, on hundred percent. Oh, is it as good as PP? That okay. formula, the formula. Otis Redding walked so doomed. Fergie could run. Are you, well, that's, that's what happened. The quote. <laughs> are you still? Are you still right, on the down. PP cocaine train? Billy, really? of course, people. PP cocaine is fantastic. I still think you need to listen to them. <laughs> I don't think I'm ever Jesus going Christ. to because no, I just like the name so much that I. Uh, I don't think the music will ever do it justice, no matter how good it is. I can assure you, it is just as shocking as this as the artist's name. But I, I will leave it at that. We'll come back to another time. Okay. Um, the so, title track right. recorded yeah, in. Go. Oh, go ahead. Should I? I'll do it. I'm going to go. Yeah, go. go um, so Pain in My Heart was the debut album. The title track was recorded in uh, September 1963 and it sparked copyright issues as it sounded like Irma Thomas's Ruler of My Heart. Even had a similar name. Uh, despite this, Pain in My Heart was released on March 1964 um, with a single peaking at number 11 on the R&B chart, number 61 on the Billboard Hot 100, and the album at number 103 in the Billboard 200. So for a debut album, that's pretty great. Um, even even heart. with having Mary's little lamb on it. This is pain in my heart. Yeah. Pain in my and here is Ruler of My Heart by Irma Thomas. This is this is where the copyright issue came in. Right. My heart cries out. I mean it's similar. I mean, hot take, a lot of the music back then sounded alike. So I don't know yeah. that they had a lot of like space to stand on. I don't know. I feel like it's more arguable now when there's like so many crazy subgenres that if a song sounds alike now, you're like, okay, they definitely did that on purpose. But back then they all kind of sounded the same. Right. Yeah. But then you talk to people like my dad always says that all pop music sounds the same. I mean, it's literally a formula, so he's not wrong. And it's also, but you know, so I feel like, it's yeah, it's like back then it all sounded the same. And then to people in that generation, all of our right. music sounds exactly sure. the same. As soon as you become a father, I think they like give you a rule book and it says you have to say all pop music sounds the same. 
That is, yeah, that is one of the requirements, it seems. Yeah. Um, so in-, in November of 1963, Redding accompanied by his brother Rogers and an associate former boxer Sylvester Huckabee, a childhood friend of Redding's, traveled to New York to perform at the Apollo Theater for the recording of a live album for Atlantic Records. Apollo Theater, huge fucking deal. I'm, I'm wondering if Otis is one of the reasons it's, it's become as big as it is, um, because this must have been early in its, in its you know... Um, and its timeline now is huge, but I wonder if this was one of the bigger things that happened there first. Yeah. Um, Redding and his band were paid four hundred dollars per week, which is about thirty three hundred today, but had to pay four fifty, which is about thirty seven hundred today, for sheet music for the house band led by King Curtis, which left him in financial difficulty. Jared, can you explain that they basically had to like pay for the rights to play the music they were playing? Is that what was happening? Yeah, like the licensing fees on it and stuff, and like to get the Got sheet it. music back then because you know. They didn't have the internet, so she, you know that's. So he was literally losing money, right? Right, which is pretty crazy. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. Also, he was, he was sheet music. More. Fucking memorize it, please. That's what I'm saying. Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Sheet music. Just take a screenshot off of a Google search. Yeah. <laughs> just literally just put your iPhone up on the on the holder and just read off your phone. I don't understand uh, what the problem is. You know, since I since I do have a piano now, uh, I do get sheet music. Oh my sometimes. god! And sheet music is expensive. He's already name dropping his piano. He just bought literally. It. Sheet music is expensive. Yeah, clearly it's a few thousand yeah, dollars. Yeah, clearly it put him in fucking debt. Yeah, my god, and it's not that <clears> easy to memorize uh, things. Okay. Um, so the trio asked Walden for money. Huckabee's description of their circumstances living in the big old raggedy Hotel Teresa is quoted by Peter, by Peter Guralnik in his book Sweet Soul Music. He noted uh, meeting Muhammad Ali and other famous celebrities. Oh, um, yeah, right. Um, Benny King, who also big deal. I don't know if you want to pull up one of his songs, Jared. He has like he's a huge deal. Um, Benny King, who was a headliner at the Apollo when Redding performed there, gave him $100, so about $800 today, when he learned about Redding's financial situation. The resulting album featured King, The Coasters, Doris Troy, Rufus Thomas, The Falcons, and Redding. Um, so that's nice. He kind of took him under his wing and was like, hey, man, just trying to make sure you don't starve to death here. Yeah, this is Benny King. Benny we King saved this. the day. We know it. We love it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Benny King has been called like what, like the, the one of like the grandfathers of blues, or some would say he's been called like the king of the Bennies. And a lot. Oh my god, I can't these, fucking stand a you. A lot of these people have the middle name thing. I'm telling you, Ali Cake or Ali. It is. Honestly, Wait, my name would be Ali G Miller. That's kind of cool. Al E G Miller. There's two. Or, what about yeah, like, Al E G G Miller. Al yeah. E Cocaine. Yes. P P L E cocaine. <laughs> East love good, cocaine. Around this God. time, Walden and Rogers were drafted by the army. Uh, Walden's younger brother, Alan, joined Redding on tour while Earl Speedo Sims replaced Roger as Redding's road manager. Most of Redding's fun fact, Earl Speedo Sims only played shows in Speedos, no matter what time of year, no matter what city they were in. Uh, yeah, wait, York, can I January, change? Only I want to be Ali Speedo Miller instead. <laughs> what happened to like the quote nickname between the first and last name? That was such a fun time in music. Why did we lose that? I don't know. I have, I I have I one of those. It. Jared the Piano Man Quarter. No, they call me Papa in the band. Papa? Yeah. 
Well, we call you dad. We seem to have a trend going on here. Well, you know. Yeah, but because Jared didn't impregnate a woman at age 13, he won't ever be a pop pop. That's a point. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a kitty cat. Oh my God. I'm kidding. He has 15 animals. He doesn't want to have. Why would you want a human child when you have a horse? Great point. Around this coming from a horse girl. Yeah. (laughs) Big horse girl. Most of Redding's songs Mm. after security uh, from his first album had a slow tempo. DJ AC Moore, AC Muha Williams accordingly labeled him Mr. Pitiful. And subsequently, Cropper and Redding wrote the uh, song, uh, wrote the song based on Mr. Pitiful. That and top 100 singles, Chained and Bound, Come to Me, and That's How Strong My Love Is, were included on Redding's uh, second studio album, The Great Otis Redding Sings Soul Ballads. Released in March 1965, and I have a couple of those songs. God, he was 25 during all. That's wild. Yeah. 24. Uh, here's Chained and Bound. He was so young. Slow. He, you know, Mr. Pitiful. Now, Which one right? is this? Chained and Bound. Oh, this is a Mr. Pitiful. No. Uh, then this is Come to Me. Sounds just like the other song. It does. Yeah, it does. So, you know, he's writing sad songs now. So here's the thing. I think back then, I think we've discussed this before, but honestly, I think the name of the game was just like, do what you're doing really well. Like, find a sound and just lean the fuck into it. If all your songs If it works, keep doing it. Exactly, yeah. There wasn't this, like, oversaturation of music like there is now. So if you did something well, just keep doing it, you know? I mean... And I feel like today, a lot of artists will... Can, like constantly reinvent themselves in order to like stay relevant. Well, now there's just push. Like to you've seen so many artist. rock bands go to pop, or you know, country right. go to pop, and it's like you have to constantly evolve. And like right. what you're the one thing you're good at when you first get famous won't be good enough in like two years time. Right. Well, I, I mean, wonder like, like how that that's shift all, happened. That's like Pitchfork and Stereo Gun. That's all those those websites that start giving you bad reviews if you make the same album three times, but. We look yeah. at people like Frank Sinatra, Otis Redding, Aretha Franklin, and you're like, they could have made the same album 10 times in a row, and they're still as famous as they are today. Just it was just and to argue, they, they kind of did. Yeah, it was just different back you then, know? which is fine. you know. Um, around 1965, Redding co-wrote I've Been Loving You Too Long with Jerry Butler, the former lead singer of The Impressions. That summer, Redding and the studio crew arranged new songs for his next album. 10 of the 11 songs were recorded in a 24-hour period on July 9th and 10th in Memphis. I mean, by any standard, that's impressive. I'm assuming, Jared, because I mean, you you record for other, you produce for other bands, and you record yourself. Can you imagine laying down ten tracks for an album for an eleven tr- uh, track album in one day? No, I don't know how you do it. No, I couldn't do it, but I will say this: like we talked about, a lot of these songs sound very similar. I mean, we just listened to "Chained and Bound." True, come sure. To me. They sound almost like the exact same song, so it's like. You know, this is doo-wop, boogie-woogie, R&B. There's kind of a formula to it. So as long as the band is tight, you know, and he can remember his lyrics, you can knock out, you know, a bunch of songs in one sitting. You know, they're not like reinventing. They're not, well, we're not, like, if, uh, to go back to, like, the Beatles stuff, It, you know, if you're making the White Album and you're trying things and you're cutting things up and you're, like, experimenting with weird sounds, that shit takes time. But if you're just like singing some hits and like the band plays, you know, a couple chords, you just got to make sure the band is good and you remember your lyrics and can hit right. your notes. As long as you can do that, you can record 
as many songs as you want. You know, you're not really like fucking with like different ideas in the studio. You're just putting good well, and recording in. I feel like mentally that would be is a lot was a lot more um, like common back then, right? Like to just hit record, record a song, and then that was that was what you you got. That was way more common. I'm assuming back then. Yeah. Also, just yeah, it was, and mm. also like uh, <clears throat> just depending on the genre of music too. It's like you know uh, the the band is playing like a shuffle in 4-4 four, four in the key of C. Okay, that's a very like standard thing. So the band, and these a lot of these guys are used to playing in nightclubs where they're playing for like 10 hours, you know, straight. You know, you're playing. Right, think about guys right, on right, right, right. in Nashville, they're playing hour, you know, they're playing six rounds of three-hour sessions, right, all day long. Right. So uh, it's not that crazy for this kind of music. Um, but like you, Ali, I think you're about to hit on it. It, it. I'm sure it was taxing, and I'm sure it would be hard on the voice and on the thing on the fingies, you know, on the fingies. Yeah. Um. um where were okay? So uh, two songs, "Old Man Trouble" and "Respect," had been finished earlier during the um, Otis Blue session. Um. To answer your question, yes. That is the respect that Aretha Franklin covered. Otis Redding wrote that song. She added the R-E-S-P-E-C-T part and she added the socket to me. But it is that is an Otis Redding song originally. Completely well, different uh, meanings, obviously. Because um, yeah. one is about him being like, I'll give you all my money. Uh, I just want you to respect me when I come home. And the other one being like, I don't need you to give me anything. I just want your respect you know, as a person. female power, very different meanings to the songs, but it's literally exact same song, which is crazy to me. Uh, the, uh, the album entitled, what no, sure? that's, I was about to say what you were about to say. You go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, so the album entitled Otis blue, Otis Redding sing soul released in 1965 also included Redding's much loved cover of a change is going to come. Do we have that? Yes. This is a change is gonna come. Change is gonna come. Wow, it sounds it it starts way different. Don't get me wrong, I love this version, but like the Sam Cook version just like literally fucking gives me chills. Like I I can't not hear the it. The Sam Cooke like, version is awesome. It's 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 insane. It's like untouchable. But what anyway, sorry. I wasn't trying to like beef up. Uh so Redding's success allowed him to buy a three hundred acre ranch in Georgia, which he called the big old ranch. Does anyone know how big an acre is? Because I fucking don't. I do. Because I have Jared? I, I, <laughs> how big? Twelve. <clears throat> uh uh how big? Well, like you want me to answer that right now? No, how yeah. many acres uh, do you have? I have 12. So, okay. So, uh, a lot. An acre is. So, this like. Um, 4,000, no, 43,560 square feet. Wow. That's a so, lot. a lot. So, uh, let's see. So, 300 <laughs> so acres lot. is fucking huge. Let's see. I live on 12, I live on 11.9 acres, 12 acres. So, 522,000 square feet, motherfucker. Damn, motherfucker! I think I have like half an acre. Yeah, that's pretty standard. I think in like the yeah. in in the city and stuff like that. Acre is pretty big. He basically he basically had half a square mile, roughly had a half a square mile. Right. Damn, that's huge. 
Uh, since Redding had a predominantly black audience, he decided to perform at Whiskey A Go Go on the Sunset Strip in LA in April of 1966. Go ahead, Jared. I said I've played what? there. Oh my God. All right. <laughs> Redding was one of the first soul artists to perform <laughs> for rock audiences in the Western United States. His so performance the, the received critical acclaim. I'm sorry. The reason it's a big deal is because, like, she was so still used to playing that like green book, you know, only black <clears throat> safe venues for most of his career up to this point. So this was kind of his being like, um, like I'm, I don't care what the audience is. I'm just going to go play this like super famous venue uh, out in California. That's like basically predominantly a white audience venue. Mm-hmm. So this is kind of like his first step into like trying to push that boundary. That's why it was a big deal. He's playing this venue. Mm. Got <clears throat> it. Sorry. Um, so and it, um, his performance received critical acclaim, which is a huge deal just for what Vinny just said, including positive press in the L.A. Times, and he penetrated mainstream popular culture. Bob Dylan attended the performance and offered writing an altered version of one of his songs, Just Like a Woman. You got that? Uh, no, but I was no? pulling up the next song. That's okay. Um, in late mm. 1966, Redding returned to the Stack studio and recorded several tracks, including Try a Little Tenderness. Mm. <laughs> God damn it, Jared. I thought you what had next Try a Little Tenderness, Jared. What? I thought you were pulling up Try a Little Tenderness. That's why you, that's why you was, stalled on the last I, one. I probably don't know. Killing me. I'm losing my shit. Um... So yeah, the song had previously been covered by Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, and the publishers unsuccessfully tried to stop Redding from recording the song from a, quote, black perspective. And the word that was originally used in that quote was not black. Uh, Got it. So, uh, yeah, that should that should say something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Today, often considered Yikes. his signature song, uh, Jimmy Stewart, the songwriter, stated, if there's one song, one performance that really sort of sums up Otis and what he's about... It's Try a Little Tenderness. Uh, That one performance is so special and so unique that it expresses who he is. On this version, Redding was backed by Booker T and the MGs, while staff producer Isaac Hayes worked on the arrangement. So he's back with Booker T and the MGs and Isaac Hayes at the helm. Can't go wrong. It was a huge deal still to this day. Although he passed away, I think, like 10 years ago or so. Yeah. Shout out Isaac Um, Hayes. Try a Little Tenderness was included on his next album, Complete and Unbelievable, the Otis Redding Dictionary of Soul. Great album name, by the way. Yeah, for Um, real. The song and the album were critically and commercially successful. Eat your fucking heart out, the people who told him not to record that. Um, The former peaked at number 25 on Billboard Hot 100 chart and at number four on the R&B chart. Yeah. What was that? Oh, that was... What was that? You see... That was the song. (laughs) (laughs) Was that the song we needed like five minutes ago? No, No, the song we needed like three three lines from now. In March uh, March 1967, Stax released King and Queen, an album of duets between Redding and Carla Thomas, which became a certified gold record. The album was recorded in January 1967 while Thomas was earning her a master's in English at Howard University. Three singles were lifted from the album. The song Tramp was released in April, followed by Knock on Wood and Lovey Dovey. This is Knock on Wood. We know this one. I don't want to do 
I love this song. He's gonna knock on wood. <laughs> no, Jared, keep going. We don't even need Otis. We okay. just need you. Yeah, we should just from now on have just Jared knock, sing all the songs that we're referring wood. to. It might be faster. You're gonna knock, knock, knock on wood. There you go. That's all I got. All right, enough of that. All three all of right. those songs reached at least top 60 on both R&B and pop charts. The album charted at number five and 36 on the Billboard pop and R&B charts, respectively. Um, in 1967, Redding performed at the influential Monterey Pop Festival as the closing act on Saturday night, the second day of the festival. So to big headline, fucking deal. Yeah, to headline a thing that big, especially on like a, a few days into the festival. Um, until that point, Redding was still performing mainly for black audiences, again, uh, apart from that Whiskey Go-Go thing he did. Um, at that time, he had not been, considered, not been considered a commercially viable player in the mainstream white American market, was the quote. Um, but after delivering one of the most electric performances of the night and having been the act to most involve the audience, his performance at Monterey Pop was therefore a natural progression from local to national acclaim, the decisive turning point Otis's in Otis Redding's career. So basically, three performances broke this guy. There was the Apollo Theater live album, there was the um, Whiskey A Go-Go in LA, and then this Monterey Pop Festival. He literally just played like, you know, hundreds of great shows, but he played three shows that made everyone basically go like, okay, we can no, no longer deny this guy is good for any audience, not just black audiences. Uh, and keep in mind, all that. of this, he was 26. Yeah, he was a baby still. Yeah. Um, so the act that we're talking about, Monterey Pop Festival, included Respect, the song that was later covered by Aretha Franklin, and Rolling Stone's Satisfaction. Um, which is cool because Brian Jones is one of the people between him and Jimi Hendrix were two of like the more famous people that talk about how it was like one of the you know biggest performances of all time. Um, it's pretty big deal to cover the Rolling Stones to get Brian Jones to be like, yeah, that shit slapped. That's that's like a pretty crazy thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, according to Booker T. Jones, he said, "I think we did one of our best shows, Otis and the MGs." that we were included in, that was also something something of a ph- phenomenon, that we were there with those people, they were accepting us, and that was one of the things that really moved Otis. He was happy to be included, and it brought him a new audience. It was greatly ex- it, wa- it was greatly expanded in Monterey. So basically talking um, about how it was cool that he got, you know, finally got acclaimed from every audience, not just a black audience. According yeah. to Sweet Soul Music, um, so like Vinny, like Jones yeah. and Jimi Hendrix were captivated by his performance. And around that time, Redding had uh, developed polyps on his larynx. You know, uh, the, that is really shitty. That happens to a lot of people. That happened to that's, Adele. That's a terrible, terrible thing to do as a singer. Right. Uh, yeah. Which he tried to uh, treat with tea and lemon or honey. He was hospitalized in September 1967 um, at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York to undergo surgery only a few months before recording the biggest hits of his career. So, you know. Well, the biggest hit is his career being what, Allie? Sitting on the dock of the bay, baby. Literally like three months before he recorded Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, he had, his larynx got yeah. fucked up. And he was also trying to cure it with tea and honey. Like, I love the holistic approach, Otis, but like, maybe... You need some drugs. Maybe try a little bit harder on that I one, tried to save you on that one, Allie, uh, because uh, uh, I want... But I sort of wanted you to read polyps on his larynx. 
Why? I could have gotten it. She would have gotten that one. She's she's polyps on his larynx. She just went through a sickness, Jared. She's well versed in in, in health things right now. Fuck (laughs) off, Jared. (laughs) All right, Jared, play the damn song. Play the damn song that we're talking about. Okay. Sitting on the Dock of the Bay was co-written All right, by Soul so, Otis Redding. No, let Allie oh, read sorry. it. Come on. Okay, so it was co-written by Soul Singer, obviously, Otis Redding, and guitarist Steve Cropper. It was recorded in early December 1967 at Stax Recording Studios, where he recorded a lot of his other stuff. Um, so while he was on tour with the Bar Kays in August of 1967, Redding wrote the first verse of the song under the abbreviated title, Dock of the Bay. And he was actually on a houseboat at Waldo Point in Sa- Sausalito, California. Sausalito, yeah. yeah. Sausalito. Um, Redding had just completed his famous performance at the Monterey Pop Festival a few weeks earlier. So what's kind of crazy with his life is that everything that we've been talking about kind of takes place in the time span of like two years. It really just, it's like, it's all slammed in such a short amount of time, which is so crazy. Even like, And yet we have so much information on it because like so the- much happened. The collab record that he did with, um, with God, what's her name? Um, Carla um, Thomas. Like all yeah, of these Carla. things, the, all these performances, all these albums he was coming out with, he was just slamming through all these things. We haven't even talked about, I don't even have in the research the actual Christmas music he was making because it just kind of didn't fit, but he was doing so much shit back then. It was I mean, crazy. we know his second biggest uh, song is Merry Christmas Baby, which right. uh, I think you guys know, right? Yeah, we'll get to that in the covers. We'll we'll do that towards okay. the end. With the, we'll do the Christmas theme stuff. But go ahead, Ali. So um, a few weeks. This after, is going to be a whole lot a few of weeks stuff before, right here. A few weeks before the Monterey Pop Festival, you were saying. <clears throat> um. Yeah. So he had just completed his famous performance and um, at Monterey uh, Pop Festival, and then Steve Cropper said in an interview regarding Redding's inspiration behind the song. Uh, Redding got the idea of the ships coming in the bay when he was on this houseboat, and that's about all he had. Um, Redding said, I watched the ships come in and I watched them roll away. I just took that and I finished the lyrics. So Redding had, um, while Redding was touring in support of the albums King and Queen, which was the collaboration with Carla Thomas, which we talked about, he continued to scribble the lines of the song on napkins and hotel paper. And then Steve Cropper ended up coming in and finished the song for him. So cool. In November of that year, um, joint producer and guitarist Steve Cropper at the Stax Recording Studio in Memphis, Tennessee to record the song. Redding was inspired by the Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, uh, and tried to create a similar sound against the label's wishes. So there you go. Bring it all back around to the Beatles. I think... I think he kind of missed on the making it sound like the Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, but cool inspiration, well, I think just but I don't, he, I don't I think hear he the sound like similarity. the sound of the wind and the, and the waves at the beginning. I think maybe that was his sure. like, okay. homage to that. Um, his wife, Zelda, sure. Zelma, disliked its atypical melody, and the Stax crew was also dissatisfied with the new sound. Stewart thought that it was not R&B, while bassist Donald Duck Dunn feared it would damage Stack's reputation. However, Redding... So basically, nobody liked it. No. This happened a handful of times. It happened with the Try Little Tenderness. Everyone was like, don't do it. And they were fucking wrong. And obviously... Like, when do they learn to, like, shut up and to trust trust him? Redding? (laughs) Maybe eventually? Maybe never. 
maybe a number. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> bum, bum, bum. Uh, so Redding basically did what he had done before, kind of said, no, I'm not listening to you. And he wanted to expand his musical style and thought it was his best song. And obviously he was yeah. correct. Um, so he whistled at the end of the song. You can hear him whistling. And um, it said in the recent, like, I found that, you know, he either forgot Cropper's fade out rap or paraphrased it intentionally. But what I actually found is on one of the, um, when they went back and started editing the song and like mixing it and everything, the whistle was supposed to be at the beginning. And the producer was like, hey, you should actually put that at the end. I think it'll sound better. And that was one of the only criticisms that Redding took from his producers. And he put that at the end. That's awesome. I love that. Because that whistle part is whistle parts aren't always great in every song. It's hard to pull off a good whistle part, but but like that was a good whistle part. And there was yeah, and it makes it sense at the end to put it at the end. Yeah, I think I think that was it's like a fade thing. out. You know, you're at the you're yeah. like sitting on the dock of the bay, and then it's like, ooh, I'm gonna whistle my tune, and then yeah, boom. it feels very um. What's that song from the original uh, um, Robin Hood? Oh yeah, the, the, in the, in the beginning, Nickelback's photograph. Fuck off. <laughs> All right. Keep going. Uh, but All right. Gets me every time. Uh, Reddingham considered the song to be unfinished after the initial recording at Stax, and he planned to record what he considered a final version, but he never got the chance. Um, I think maybe Jared should read this. I think Ali and I have both, both, both know about this. I don't know if Jared's yeah, read this read yet. This Jared, go ahead. Before and- we do, before we get to that part, let's, let's do a little plug. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I yeah, forgot. Probably. Okay. We'll keep this one brief for you. We know it's the holiday season. You got shopping to do. You got to go to Mervyn's and all that good stuff. <coughs> so we are on Instagram at Oh Yeah That Song. We post updates. We post updates about the uh, the episodes that, we're, that are coming out. We post uh, some more trivia. You can also hit us up if you learned something that we didn't know about the song or if you just want to say hi. So find us on Instagram. At, oh yeah, that song. We're also on Twitter, kind of. Um, we're all we're not. on Patreon, which is a platform where you can give uh, as little as two dollars a month, as much as twenty dollars a month, and support the podcast. It allows us to get the gear that we need to do to uh, have the time to edit these uh, episodes and all of that stuff, and do the research, give you the quality episodes that you crave. Right. So right, we are on Patreon at p a t r e o n dot com slash p p cocaine. Jesus Christ! Slash oh yeah, that song. Uh, and uh, at every level, you get cool shit. You we'll send you uh, personalized letters and thank yous. You get shit from our house at a certain level. Uh, you get bonus content every episode, like uh, stuff that hit the cutting room floor. And as a producer, you get thanked on every episode if you give a certain amount. So let's thank those people now. We have four producers now, which is pretty fucking awesome. Uh, First of all, we obviously have Amy Wexler, Tommy Abel, uh, Brian Hales, and Dougie Kerr. We love you guys. Thanks for helping us. Uh, We know it's a crazy time out there, so if you can't give, that's okay. Just tell your friends. But if you can, even as little as $2 coming up, and hey, maybe they'll do another stimulus and you can think about helping us daddies and mommies. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, can you know what I'm saying? One of our sweet babies or our gay frogs or whatever we call you guys now. I'm losing track of what Oh yeah, we're, they, they, they were our gay frogs. I miss my gay frogs. Yeah. That's what it was. I want to call them our little pee-pee cocaines. 
<laughs> my little cocaine babies. My little coke babies. I'm going to start a, I'm going to be a All right, rival. Jared, I want you I'm to read be this. A rival rapper called Poo Poo Heroin. Jesus Christ. Are you going to live in Oregon? Yes. Too soon. I am. Too soon. Uh, Too soon. God. All right, Jared. So to touch base on the last thing, really quick, Redding had considered the song to be unfinished after initial recording at Stax and planned to record what he considered a final version, but never got the chance. By 1967, the band was traveling to performances in Redding's beer or Beechcraft H18 airplane. So Otis Redding owned this airplane. On December 9th, they appeared on the upbeat television show produced in Cleveland. They played three concerts and two nights at a club called Leo's Casino. After a phone call with his wife and kids, Redding's next stop was Madison, Wisconsin. And the next day, Sunday, December 10th, they were to play at the Factory Nightclub near the University of Wisconsin. Although the weather was poor, with heavy rain and fog, and despite warnings, the plane took off. Four miles from their destination at Truax Field in Madison, pilot Richard Frazier radioed for permission to land. Shortly thereafter, the plane crashed into Lake Monona. Barquet's member, Ben Colley, the accident's only survivor, was sleeping shortly before the accident. He woke just before impact to see bandmate uh, Phelan Jones look out the window and exclaim, Oh no. Colley said the last thing he remembered before the crash was unbuckling his seatbelt. He then found himself in frigid water, grasping a seat cushion to keep afloat. As a non-swimmer, he was unable to rescue the others. The cause of the crash was never determined, and James Brown claimed in his autobiography, The Godfather of Soul, that he had warned Redding not to fly in the plane. Crazy. That's like the most traumatizing shit I've ever fucking done. Crazy. Like, um, <clears throat> it's, it's like fucking scary enough to die in a plane crash, but to be the only survivor in a plane crash sounds almost as terrifying. Yeah, for any of you thinking about traveling in an airplane this week for uh, or next couple of weeks for Christmas, that's just thought that'd be a fun little tidbit for you guys. You yeah. know, isn't that so if you, fun? If you needed any more uh, help, t- you know, saying don't go on a fucking airplane. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, this happened on my birthday, not by the year, obviously, but December tenth is my birthday, and most likely the day we'll be releasing this episode, maybe the day after we'll be releasing this episode. So I thought that was interesting when I saw that. Um, so the other victims of the crash stuff. were four members of the Bar Ks, guitarist Jimmy King, tenor saxophonist Balon Jones, organist Ronnie Caldwell, and drummer Carl Cunningham. Their valet, Matthew Kelly, and the pilot, Frazier. Redding's body was recovered the next day when the lake was searched. Uh, his He died just three days after recording Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. Wow. Three after days. Three like days. After recording it, not after it came out. <clears throat> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. so literally this he recorded it and then he died three days later. Yeah. That's insane. Uh, that's crazy. <clears throat> if he had just if he was like, oh, we'll just do it next week, we would have never gotten sitting on the dock yeah. of the bay. Whoa. Insane. Uh, he was survived yeah. by his wife Zelma and their four kids, Otis the third, Dexter uh Demetria, and Carla. After Redding's death. Proper mixed Dock of the Bay at Stack Studios. He added the sound of seagulls and waves crashing to the background. So I guess that wasn't early on with Redding. That was after Redding had passed. So uh, he added the sounds of the Also, can you imagine? Waves. So Zelma right now, she would have been 23 and now she's a widow and with four children. Of uh, four children. Yeah. Four kids. Uh, That's wow. insane. Uh, as Redding had requested, recalling the sounds he heard when he was staying at the houseboat. Okay. 
So, so yeah, he requested to have those things okay. uh, put in post in production. The song was released in January 1968, shortly after Redding's abrupt death. It shot to number one on the R&B charts in early 1968 and starting in March, topped the pop charts for four weeks. The album, which shared the song's title, became his largest selling to date, peaking at number four on the pop album's charts. And Dock of the Bay was popular in countries around the world and became Redding's most successful record, selling more than four million copies worldwide. The song went on to win two Grammys, Best R&B and Best Male R&B Vocal Performance. His family... Isn't that how it always happens? Yeah. Person dies, they get famous. Yeah, but like he actually deserved it. There's some people that they just get famous because they die. And I'm like, uh, I get it. But like, uh, but like this one, he literally made one of the most famous songs of all time and then died three days later. Like that one kind of made sense. And so tragically. I always not. It's going to be such a. I hate the idea of posthumous records. Like I can't stand when people release people's shit after they die. It bothers me so much. But this time, I feel like it 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 made sense. It's to gonna be it. such a bummer to not be alive to see you guys try to talk all this nice shit about me when I'm famous after I die. <laughs> like when I'm dying, Jared, I'm die dying, already! So we like, become oh, famous. Yeah, the yeah, fuck are you waiting no, for? Loved him. We were always so no. Nice we can't. Like, we can't do that though, because like now that we're in the technology age, people have receipts. They'll be like, no, you rip on Jared all the yeah. time. You always said yeah, he'd never be famous. True. I mean, then he'd be like, no, yeah. that's not true. Yeah, you'll be like, oh, man. No, we I were, just want the podcast to get famous. He was famous. like our best friend. He was, we thought he was just like the most talented like and handsome <laughs> artist. We loved when he name dropped and when he bought his piano, we yeah, just he was knew a great that, that was it. Yeah. He's like songbird of our generation. Yeah. And I'll be like, yeah, and be like you guys wait until um, now. Uh, so Redding's family postponed the funeral from December 15th to the 18th so that more people could attend and the service took place at the city auditorium in Macon Uh, more than 4,500 people came to the funeral overflowing the 3,000 seat hall Johnny Jenkins and Isaac Hayes did not attend fearing their reaction would be worse than Zelma Redding's what is that weird like um, they. I think they thought they were gonna like upstage her, maybe, and how sad they were. I don't know what that. I'm not sure exactly. It's a weird reason, it's weird. but it's it is thing. what it is, I guess. Especially like people as important to his life as Johnny Jenkins and Isaac Hayes. I, I I'm shocked they didn't show up, but whatever. Maybe that's just the reason yeah. they gave. Maybe there's another reason. Who knows? Um, Redding was entombed at his ranch in Round Oak, about 20 miles north of Macon, um, the Big O Ranch, if I remember remember correctly. Mm-hmm. Um, and on November 8th, 1997, a memorial plaque was placed on the lakeside deck of the Madison Convention Center in Monona Terrace. So the um, the lake, basically, where he crashed, which is yeah. very sad. And Oh, that's so tragic. Always a fun note to end on death, as we do very often in this as podcast. As we do. As you do. It should be called, oh yeah, that famous death. Literally, though. Um, do we have spooky Christmas music, Jared? Oh. Is it time to bust that out yet? Ooh, yeah. Hold on. I think it's time to bust that out. And we'll before we do the uh, the covers this month, we're gonna do uh, only people who have also have famous Christmas songs. So before we get into the covers, we'll play each artist's respective famous Christmas song. Okay. Um, Hold on. Let's see. So take your time. Let's. We're, he, this is this is a pivot in your sheet music. This is, yeah, <laughs> this is an audible it. for Jared. So we're this time we understand him taking uh, a while. Twas the night. Is this the creepy Christmas? My music? covers. 
This is uh, Jingle Bells. Jingle Bells, dark and scary version. Dark and scary version. Yeah. I like it. Dark okay, and cool. okay. scary. We'll work there on that. There are a lot of covers of this song, so I just try to pick the ones by the best, the biggest artist that we've heard or the most interesting. Wait, wait. Go to Otis's Christmas music oh, first. Okay. First up, Otis's Christmas music. Merry Christmas, baby. His number two song on Spotify. Love this song. Why does this one go so unappreciated? I feel like this isn't on any playlist, like, ever. I don't think this is unappreciated. I don't... I never get to hear this song out in the wild. It's a... Why are you in the wild? Are you in the wild? I am in the (laughs) wild. You're right. My bad. I don't know what I'm doing in the woods waiting for Christmas. Go inside, honey. It's a pandemic. What are you, fucking folklore over here? It's a pandemic, honey. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Folklore. And then he also has a, a cover of White Christmas, which is also super good, actually. Um... All right, um, but now it's time to get get back under these covers. Come on. All right, all right, fine. Our barely Christmas Christmas episode. I'm sorry, right. I forgot. Next up. So first up, actually, not next up. First up, we have, I can never <laughs> say her last name correctly, Sarah Burrell, Barry Ellis. Borellis? Borellis. Borellis. Ask Andrew. He knows. A live version. True. <clears throat> All right, you get it. Yeah, she's good. I I don't quite get the hype with her. I liked her in middle school, but she's good. I don't give a fuck about Sarah Borales. I'll say it out loud to her. I don't give a fuck. Whoa, in 2020? Uh, Next up, we have Glenn (laughs) Campbell. This is a cool version. Oh, I love Glenn Campbell. Very cool. I didn't know he covered this. Oh, I'm going to save yeah. this. This is awesome. Oh, so many people covered Get this. Get ready. It's Next ridiculous. up, we have motherfucking Michael Bolton. <laughs> Man, I like Michael Bolton as a singer and as a human. Michael Bolton's fantastic. And as a person. He just seems like he's really cool and he's got a good sense of humor. He seems fun. He's like done multiple things with Lonely Island. Yeah. He just seems like a fun guy. All right. Next up, we have Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson. I'm sitting. Oh, I love Waylon Jennings. Wow. I love Willie Nelson. I didn't know they covered this. To be fair, Willie Nelson's covered every song ever written. Ever. Okay. Fair. Did you hear his cover of uh, The Scientist by Coldplay? It's no, no. I'm very excited to do I a like. Willie Nelson what? episode, and that should come up at some yeah. point. What? Yeah, it's very good. It, it, Willie Nelson's version of it is very, very good. I think he just gets stoned and covers songs. Like I think that's just his yeah. thing. A, I think that's what we all should do. Uh, the world would be a better place if we all just got stoned and covered songs. I can't songs wait until he gets famous Agreed. after he dies. Fuck off, Jared. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Up, the staple singers. <laughs> I'll be sitting when the evening comes. Yeah. I like this. Watching ships rolling. Okay. This is a good version of this. Yeah, they did did justice. Next up, Drew Holcomb with Ellie Holcomb. One, two. Okay. Because he does a lot of Americana stuff. Watching ships rolling. Oh, that's like current. That's, uh, that's Ellie. This is a great duet song that's to do. Would you say, Ellie? 
This is a great duet to do. Because it's a good range for both. I guess she kind of sings most of it. Okay, Allie, this next one's for you. Straight No Chaser. (gasps) (laughs) Allie, can you tell everybody about your dream last night? Wait, what is this? Oh, this is straight no chaser. This is acapella. What's what? happening? What did I miss? What What is this? Straight no chaser. Were you listening? Wait, what? Straight no chaser. Oh, got it. I don't know what oh, that is. Oh, acapella. Got acapella BB. Sorry, dream. I missed that for a second. Uh, I had a dream last night that Jared and Vinny we were at a music festival and they like publicly shamed me in front of everybody and then said, we don't want you on the podcast anymore. And I was like, fuck, I mean, that really sucks. But like, okay, like, I mean, they canceled me. And then my boyfriend literally broke up with me. And I was like, why are you breaking up with me? And he was like, you're not on a podcast anymore. (laughs) And I was like, what? I I feel like, and I'm like, I didn't even know you listened to our podcast. See, I feel, yeah, that was my dream. I broken up with because I'm on a podcast. Yeah, really. How's Kristen yeah, doing? She is she handling you yeah. okay? We we good. We tight like this. <laughs> all right, good. She's all right. We good. We, we love. All right, Jared, keep going. It's been a night apart since the day we started dating. Yeah, that's insane. Okay, next up. I would have murdered you by now. <laughs> Probably you would have. Yes. Next up, Rod Stewart. Another live one. Rod Stewart. Rod Stewart has a great voice. He does. He's a great voice. I always forget that he was uh, the lead singer of Faces before Faces. he did like if you think if you want my body and you think I'm sexy, <laughs> right? It's like his it's like his redeeming thing. Like everybody in every like cool music person is like, oh man, I love Rod Stewart because I love the Faces. Yeah, you know? they are they are a great band, honestly. All right, next up we have sitting. On, these are all just called sitting on the dock of the bay. So right, okay, you don't have to say it anymore. <laughs> cool. So Aaron Neville. Oh my God. It's kind of like uh, Louisiana. This is awesome. I love Aaron Neville. Jesus Christ. Jerry, you have to send me this whole playlist. There's so many. Next up, motherfucking Cher. Yeah. Cher? Old Cher. This is like the 60s Cher. This is like, not like, do you believe? This is like, Old shit, you know, the old back in the day share. Very good. Oh, she's so good. Share's got a great. Oh, that was awesome. All right, a few more. Tom Jones. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. I feel like my legacy might be if I do find success in music. I feel like I'm going to end up being just personality wise. I could see that. (laughs) I could definitely see that. I want to see you sing with one of those like really long skinny microphones from like the seventies in like a, in like a Tom Jones suit, you know? Yeah. You're holding it like all the way down at your belly because it's such a long fucking microphone. Yeah. All right. Tell me if either of you know this reference. Next up, the California Raisins. Yeah. Allie does not. All right. So when I was a kid, there were these raisins. It was like an ad campaign to get people to buy raisins. And California raisins, kind of like Florida grape, Florida oranges or something, right? I've heard of California raisins, but I didn't know if it was like a specific. 
Well, like they had Calif they had these claymation raisins singing songs, like R and B songs, and they would like they got pretty big in pop culture. So they like put out albums and had like little TV shows and stuff. And it was just like Alvin and the Chipmunks. Basically. It just kind of spiraled out of control. Right. It was just like it was just like a yeah. tourism thing that just kind of like blew up way too hard. Right. All right. Uh, Sting. 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 Honestly, fucking hate Sting. <laughs> Hot take. The police, police have. Yeah, but fuck Sting as a person. True. I don't know. He seems like he seems like a douchebag. Is what he seems like. I say true, and I have like, like literally no guys, beef with he Sting seems at like all. A gentle lover. Okay. He's. He's. I think he's the first. I, this is probably not true, but he seems like he was the first white person to like steal tantric sex from like India. Like he seems like that kind of guy. That was like, such a jump uh, and such a it's claim. It's like holistic. It's I don't know how to explain the way I feel about Sting. He just seems like a scummy guy that's like hiding it by being. That's woke fair. I could kind of like, see that. Or like holistic or whatever. I don't know. Fuck that guy. All right. Well, we got a few more. I'm left. coming for you, Sammy Sting. Hagar. Yeah, okay. this one's cool. Okay, cool. I'll be setting when the evening comes. This is really cool. Right. I love this one. You like Sammy Hagar? See. Si. You big Hagar? Fan? Yeah, I like his solo stuff a lot. Mm, that's fair. Okay. Next up, Cosmo Klein, The Campers, and Bollinger. Sitting in the morning sun. This is like a dance version. I'll be sitting till the evening cooks. Whoa! Love it. Sure. It's pretty cool. Let's see if they do the whistle at the end. Yep. Cool. That was really cool. All right. Who did that? Okay, three more. Who did left. that? Jared? I want to. I want to add that one. That was Cosmo Klein and the Campers. Um. Got it. Okay. Sitting on the dock of the bay, Marca Canaglia. Sitting in the morning sun. Yeah. This one caught me off guard. I like it. Rock metal punk version. Yeah. Okay. Uh, second to last one. Sitting on the dock of the bay. 8-bit arcade. Ooh. This song is... This version is three minutes long. I'm over it. I'm over it. One more. <laughs> we know you love your 8-bit. Well, I still have two and a half minutes of this song. I still have two and a half minutes of this song. <laughs> Alright, last one, Jared. <laughs> last one. Sitting on the dock of the bay by Chill Baby. <gasps> oh, what a sweet song to end I love on. the name of this group. Chill Babies. I love Babies this. at the teenage party. <laughs> Where apparently uh, everyone's getting pregnant song, at the teenage party. Yay, babies! Um, let's go out on this. This song. is really nice. 
Uh, this has been Oh Yeah, That Song. We've missed you so much. We really have. Thanks for sticking with us, guys. I know this yeah. year has not been an easy one. It's been fun. And we've taken crazy. a lot of breaks, yeah. but we appreciate you a lot. Second year of a podcast. It's okay. We'll a keep little bit. Running. Yep. As long as y'all will keep listening, we'll keep putting out episodes. And uh, someday this crazy world will get back to normal, you know? Yeah. Inspiring. They're inspiring. This is Jared. We'll all I know his song's like a recorded song. Inhalers. This is actually Jared playing playing along, his upright piano along with that's right uh, this is my new piano guys what do you think it's pretty it sounds great um, very I talented. Think we'll, pretty we'll probably appreciate it more after you die honestly yeah if you die like soon i'll appreciate it well until then until then open, right? i'm Allie. i'm jared i'm Vinny. we love you goodbye bye bye <laughs> god damn it if I keep hanging around <laughs> Allie, I might die pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> no. Bye, baby.